welcome to the fifth edition of the Redress podcast. I'm Sarah Khan, here to update you about all the work Redress is doing to seek justice for survivors of torture. Transitional justice aims to address the legacy of vast human rights violations committed during conflicts in order to ensure a better future. A lot has been spoken and written about the need to place the needs of victims at the heart of transitional justice processes. But as Redress and his partners experience working in countries such as Uganda, Guatemala and Sudan show, often victims have little room to influence these processes and have their voices heard. Coming up in today's episode, we'll be discussing what the main obstacles are that impede the meaningful participation of those most affected by conflicts in transitional justice processes and what can be done to improve this situation. Joining me to discuss this is an activist and survivor of the Uganda conflict, Sylvia Akan, Marlies Stappers from Impunity Watch, Luke Moffat from Queen's Belfast University and Amir Suleiman, a Sudanese lawyer who works for the African Centre on Justice and Peace Studies on Human Rights and Democratisation Issues in Sudan. A recent report released by Redress and his partners Impunity Watch, Victims Front and Centre, urges policymakers to challenge assumptions about victims as passive agents and to recognise their role as actors who can exert significant influence in these processes. The report calls for the meaningful participation of victims by ensuring that transitional justice processes reflect the long-term needs of victims, integrating victims' activism and visions for justice, and tackling the prevailing structures of impunity, violence and inequality that are at the root of conflict. Up first, we have Marley Steppers, the Executive Director of Impunity Watch. Thank you for joining me today, Marlies. So firstly, I'd like you to start by explaining to our audience what a victim-centred approach in transitional justice means and how that differs from other approaches. It is an approach to transitional justice that places victims' needs squarely at the centre of those transitional justice approaches. And I think, you know, that if we think about transitional justice, we of course want these approaches to be meaningful to victims. And if they need to be meaningful to victims, then of course it's the victims who need to be able to decide on what the goals of these strategies are and what the priorities should be. And of course to make sure that these processes remain really focused on the needs of the victims, remain focused on their priorities. It only makes not more than sense that victims um, uh, are part of the design of these strategies, are part of the implementation thereof, and also of the evaluation of the success of, um, of these approaches. And from that perspective, I think a victim-centered approach for transitional justice um, is a political approach. So it's not a technocratic, legalistic approach only, but it's very much a political approach that seeks to transform societies into more just societies. What we've seen over the past decades, perhaps, is that the field got more internationalized, got more professionalized, and little by little start moving away a little bit from that origin of activism, of grassroots um, mobilization. Your recent report identifies various ways in which victim participation has fallen short in both Guatemala and Uganda. 
Taking Guatemala as an example, what would you describe as the most significant obstacles to realizing a victim-centered approach? Well, Guatemala is such an interesting case to study and to look at because on the one hand, you see you know, that strong um, victim activism has really meant that victims were able to move transitional justice processes forward, really designed on their own needs, you know, in terms of justice, in terms of, of, of truth, in terms of memorization, in terms of non-repetition and dealing with structures of impunity. So there's a lot we can learn there. Well, the processes in Guatemala started to become effective and especially effective in challenging some of the root causes of impunity. That's when the situation became really difficult and the status quo who had maintained power and uh, who, of course, didn't want to let go of their impunity and of their interests. So I would say perhaps the first important obstacle was that there was not really a political uh, transition. So the status quo stayed in place. And that impunity is so deeply ingrained that once it starts touches, touching upon the really powerful interest of the elites, the elites start pushing back, start to organize, and processes then revert. And it becomes very dangerous and difficult for victims to continue their fight forward. So perhaps the second um, very important obstacle in the Guatemala context is um, the deeply ingrained racism and discrimination against the um, indigenous populations, the Maya population. And the deeply ingrained racism is also something that permeates society. So also on a societal level, people think of, um, it's basically a system of apartheid. So still have the tendency to criminalize the indigenous population for the crimes that occur to them. What role can the international community play so the voices of victims are heard during these processes? Well, I think the international community has a pivotal role to play and it played that role in the past. But um, in order to be successful and in order for results to be sustainable in time, this needs to be a long-term process. So to follow up on these processes and to make sure that results really can you know, lead to more sustainable results means a long-term, um, means long-term breath. And often we see, as we also saw in Guatemala, that this was not the case. Thank you, Marlise. Next, we have Sylvia Khan joining us today from Uganda. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvia. Thank you so much for joining me today. You lost your family during the armed conflict in Uganda and survived sexual violence and other violations. You founded Golden Women Vision, an NGO that works to improve the socioeconomic status of victims left vulnerable from the conflict. Firstly, what encouraged you to become an advocate for victims after the conflict? What motivated me at first when I was working with the Norwegian Refugee Council, when I came back from captivity, I felt like I found all my parents were not there. I had nowhere to turn to. I still remember how my sister was killed as she was slaughtered. So the experience I felt, it made me to, because I thought I had no, I had no reason to live, but as to now I speak, I feel there's a reason for me to, to live and then try to support, try to find any other ways to support victim, a survivor like me. Because I need life, they also need life, you see. To me, I felt I need to act and support my fellow survivors. The little I have, I have to give them. I started doing it with the documents, 
And right now we have about 532 survivors in Golden Women Vision in Uganda. What do you see as some of the main challenges preventing victims, and particularly women, participating in transitional justice? The problem is, you know, uh, we, we don't have all the survivors only in one community or in, in a reachable place. Others are in hard to reach places. Due to lack of resources, we cannot bring all the victims in where the war took place. Most of the responsibilities is being like, it's the women taking the high responsibilities, you see? Because they are the, they are the one who are really deeply affected. They are deeply affected and they come out to talk about it because it is it, it, the pain that they have. They are the people who are facing all these challenges yeah? due to high, high rise of the gender based violence, due to uh, they have nowhere to, to stay. They are the one taking care of the, even the children born from captivity. All the household needs they have to cater, it is the women. What do you think are the most important priorities for Uganda victims at this time? And what could the government of Uganda do to address them? The, the most priorities for the victim in Uganda this time, reparation, my dear. Because if you are to see most of the survivors are dying and they will die, some of them are dead already and others are having chronic illnesses, as I say, they are sick. Our dying sisters, our dying mothers, will have hope to live for some more few years. So the government of Uganda should come in and act. Thank you very much. That was Sylvia Kam. In the next segment, we'll be discussing the role of reparations in transitional justice. The experiences of Uganda and Guatemala show that an official reparations policy does not necessarily ensure redress for the harms that victims have suffered. Both countries have yet to see the kind of holistic approach to reparations that could lead to transformative change. Here to discuss this is Professor Luke Moffat, a reparations expert from Queen's Belfast University who has long studied this issue. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Firstly, what is a holistic approach to reparations and how can this approach lead to transformative change? I think a, a holistic approach to reparations uh, involves a number of things. And I think a starting point is, you know, which victims are going to be um, eligible and beneficiaries um, of a reparations process. And um, the second thing is then, you know, what sort of measures um, are going to be provided to victims. And perhaps a third layer is then how does then reparation sits with other processes and programs that are going on at the same time, such as you know, truce commissions, trials, vetting processes, um, and, and even broader things like uh, sec security sector reform and demobilization programs. The difficulty is, though, when you're trying to be holistic, it's that at the end of the day, when we're dealing with like mass atrocities, there can be hundreds of thousands or even millions of victims, and it sometimes isn't feasible or even doable to do reparations for all those victims. I'm uh, a bit skeptical about the extent to which reparations can transform society. Um, I would like to hope that by doing reparations to victims, it will change the way in which society acts towards those who are marginalized and victimized in the past. I think reparations are, are key. And I think the priority of reparations is to redress victims' harm. And um, secondary goals of sort of change in society um, is a lot for a reparations program to do. And I think it needs to be complemented, 
by institutions and by other programs and processes, but more importantly, by society itself, because otherwise it'll just keep on happening again and again. Um, and even in Guatemala, where you know you have the Pinera, the, the reparations program, and yet um, only a fraction of victims actually received any redress. And so victims march on the street en masse. Luke, you've, you've studied the issue of reparations in many transitional justice contexts outside of Guatemala and Uganda. What are the common challenges you find? One of the challenges is trying to secure reparations in law that have a dedicated budget line. And um, because there what you mean what you have is that victims have got a process they can go for that they know that's going to be a year on year payment. Um, it's sustainable and there's some sort of certainty to it. But it takes a long time, sometimes never occurs, that uh, these like a reparations law is passed or there's funding to actually support it. Um, and I, I think that really reflects that reparations, why there's you know clear legal obligations in international human rights law, there's less so when we talk about the laws of war. Um, we've got the UN Basic Principles 2005 which speak to that states um, have an obligation to provide an effective remedy and reparations for victims of gross violations of human rights and serious breaches of international humanitarian law. But it doesn't necessarily translate into actual practice. Um, the vast majority of states moving away from conflict or authoritarianism don't enact reparations um, because it's very politically contentious. Thank you, Luke. And lastly, to conclude this episode, we're joined by our partners in Sudan, the African Centre for Peace and Justice, an NGO committed to human rights and legal reform in Sudan. The regime of former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir had a long history of perpetrating torture and other human rights atrocities to silence critics. Al-Bashir's ousting in April of 2019 moved Sudan into a new era under a transitional government, but the goals of justice and accountability for past atrocities still remain far out of reach for victims. Last year, the transitional government drafted new legislation to deal with the transitional justice process in Sudan, but the draft was not preceded by any consultation or participation process for civil society or victims. To discuss this, we have with us today Amir Suleiman, a torture survivor who is also a lawyer working on human rights issues in Sudan for the African Centre of Justice and Peace Studies. Firstly, I'd like to discuss the Transitional Justice Commission Bill. Why is it important that the bill reflects the voices of the actual people who will be affected by it? In Sudan, the situation there is very fragile. We have organized people, we have land issues, we have everything and all these problems. We should put the, the victims in the center so this kind of conflict and this kind of violation will not be committed in the future. And how can the transitional government guarantee the consultation and participation of those most affected by the human rights abuses under al-Bashir's regime. We, we had um, the Juba peace agreement between the government of Sudan and the rebels, but also the government of Sudan is establishing other different uh, mechanisms, especially for the accountability and for the investigation what is happening uh, during Bashir regime. We have different investigation investigative bodies. We have uh, different committees getting all type of violation during Bashir time. 
we have another committee which is uh, uh, mandated for the enforced disappearance. And uh, the third one is concerning the massacre of the start of June 2019. This massacre happened during the, uh, the transitional government. If I go through the, the Juba peace agreement, also they are mentioning different level of uh, trial. They are putting number one, the International Criminal Court. They are thinking about establishing a special court in Darfur. And lastly, also they are putting a kind of reconciliation count, and this is related to the tribal matters, but it's specifically in Darfur, and it is uh, related to the land issue. I'd like to thank the guests for their contributions to today's episode and thank you all for listening. I would encourage you all to follow the link to Redress's website for the full report. Please continue to share this episode across social media platforms and continue supporting our efforts to obtain redress for survivors of torture. Thank you.